In the jungles of the Brazilian Amazon, groups of farmers and their families get by on what they can build, grow, and cultivate with the land beneath their feet. They might not technically own this land, but they have a deep sense of place. They're what's known in Brazil as landless workers. Well, the landless movement, is, it's a huge movement. It's not one movement. You have thousands of groups of, you know, poor people who are fighting for a piece of land. That's Ana Aranha. She's a documentary filmmaker who has covered the landless workers' movement in all of its environmental, social, and political intricacies for over a decade. About four years ago, Ana caught on to a conflict brewing in Pará, a northern state that covers the Brazilian Amazon. We were tracking some information about the rates of violence in the state of Pará, you know, about how some groups of big land owners were getting ready to try to expel the landless movements across the state of Pará. One of the landless workers in Pará whom Ana would come to know was a young farmer named Fernando dos Santos Araujo. Fernando had claimed his bit of land in Pardearco, on the eastern side of the state of Pará, and he worked damn hard. It was there that Fernando farmed his fruits and vegetables for his meals. His dream was to live in peace in that settlement. Fernando was a handsome man, physically, I mean. He had um, a ponytail, <laughs> and uh, he had a beautiful smile, and um, he had a fit body, you know. He didn't work out, but he was a rural worker, so he looked always sharp in, in his own way, you know. He was always taking care of the way he looked. The other thing you should know about Fernando is that he was gay. He had a partner named Bruno Pereira Gomez. His sexuality added another layer of risk to an already tenuous situation as a landless worker. And it was really hard for him because he was homosexual in a rural community with a lot of prejudice, of course. But he always found a way, you know. He always found a way to live his life fully. Everyone in the settlement really liked Fernando. That's what Ana told me over and over. And she was very fond of him too, right up until the last moment she saw him in December. Last time I saw him, I remember I brought the COVID protocol. I had some alcohol gel in my hands and then I just touched him. I touched his arm, you know, to tell him, you know, take care of yourself. A month later, in January of this year, Fernando was murdered. And the cause of his death and the killing of 10 others four years earlier is the result of a centuries-long struggle over land, power, and the Amazon. This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Yesenia Funes. We are so incredibly lucky that Yesenia is our guest correspondent for this episode. She is graciously filling in for Leah Stokes, who is currently on sabbatical. And when you're not jamming with us on this podcast, Yesenia, you are climate editor at Atmos Magazine. Climate editor covers a lot of things. Tell us a little bit about your work and what aspects of the climate crisis you focus on. Yeah, so for Atmos, I publish 
an environmental justice newsletter that comes out twice a week called The Frontline. That's um, a big chunk of my work with Atmos, but really um, working on injecting climate justice and environmental justice topics and themes into all of our coverage, whether that's um, on our Instagram page, on our features, or in our lovely print magazine, which publishes twice a year. And that's exactly what we're hoping to do some of today, because you spent a lot of time earlier this year reporting on the landless worker movement in Brazil. And I just thought it was such fantastic reporting that you did. And I'm really curious, as a climate journalist, what drew you to these farming communities where the tragedy of Fernando's murder unfolded? The Amazon in particular gets so much attention in the climate coverage because of the deforestation that's happening there, and rightly so. But when we talk about the impact, it's often in terms of gigatons of carbon. It's math. It's numbers, right? But what about the people who call the rainforest home? And, well, people are really the focus of my reporting. So I had covered many indigenous land issues throughout Latin America, including around the Amazon rainforest. But the landless workers movement was entirely new to me. And so when I first learned of Fernando's death, I was immediately drawn in to this movement in this sort of new group of of people that I hadn't heard of. Um, These are farmers who don't necessarily think of themselves as environmentalists. Um, They just operate small farms, you know, more like gardens for their families. And they speak out against the giant plantations and the cattle ranches that are actually devastating the Amazon. Their community under threat from both big ag industry, and deadly violence. I think this is such a fascinating topic because on the surface, it doesn't necessarily read immediately as, oh, this is so obviously connected to forests. It's so obviously connected to climate. But you've done such a fantastic job of connecting those dots that the landless workers movement is a form of land defense in a sense. Exactly, exactly. And I think that traditionally land defense has been tied to indigenous communities and tribal nations, and they play such a critical role as well. But the landless workers movement plays a similar role because um, they're also protecting the Amazon. I mean, the alternative is giant companies or private families coming in and cutting down forests to you know, build out their ranches or soy plantations just for profit, right? For money. And that's not what these farmers are doing at all. They're not concerned about making money. They're just concerned about having food to eat on their table or feeding their families. And so their farming methods are, you know, a lot more restorative, a small scale. They're just trying to live and work off the land. And, you know, they're not out there with picket signs and raised fists, but they're certainly taking a stand. And in this case, their presence is the very protest. I'm curious why this is such a big issue in Brazil. Why are these groups of landless workers, land defenders, claiming these small plots of land as their own? And why are they getting into so much trouble for it? Yeah, land is so precious in Brazil, um, as it is everywhere, but especially in Brazil. Only 1% of the population there owns nearly half of the country's land. That's huge. I mean, this is a large country as well. On the other hand, you have 4.5 million families in Brazil who own no land. And this inequality is what drives rural farm workers to claim unused land for their own. 
And this is obviously the movement that inspired Fernando as well. Yeah, Fernando along with the others occupying the farm. The settlement is called Santa Lucia, and it's legally owned by the Babinski family, the family of the late cattle rancher and timber businessman Honorato Babinski. They're a powerful family with farms all over the region. The federal government tried to buy this land to formally give to the farmers, but by the time all the parties agreed on a price, the program to pay landowners had been defunded. (sighs) Ironically, the Babinskis are holding on to all this land because... They understand the same fact of life as the landless workers. That's that land is power. Right. Land is absolutely power and clearly also a fault line. So how did this conflict over the Santa Lucia farm originally get started? Yeah, so it started in 2013 when some farmers identified the land as abandoned. And from there, it didn't take long for word to spread and for others, like Fernando, to come join the occupation. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the violence to start either. Ana Aranja, the journalist we heard earlier, met Fernando back in 2017, the day after his whole world shattered. It was at a safe house in Rio de Janeiro. Ana was interviewing Fernando for a documentary. What did Fernando look like that first time you saw him? He had his hair wet. He had just taken a shower. He was trying to be strong. He was trying to, you know, get himself ready to report what happened. Of course, he was crying. And he just agreed to sit down, which was pretty brave of him, you know, sit down, have a camera in his face and tell the story of what he had just been through. He described the details of the day before. He was in disbelief. That morning had felt like any other day. He'd just woken up alongside his love, Bruno. He was cooking breakfast. Fernando was the one responsible for making the food for the settlers. But before the morning coffee was poured, a car pulled into the campsite. It was the civilian and military police, and the families knew nothing good could come of that. Some people wanted to hide. Some people wanted to run because they were afraid of the police. The ones that were more experienced didn't want to run. They wanted to stay and talk to the police because they knew that this would be, this would be better, you know, just know what the police wanted and, and then react. A group of them, including Fernando and Bruno, took refuge in the forest. Not long after, the rain began. And not just any rain. You know, rain, really, really heavy rain, the Amazonian rain. A storm had arrived, and with it, clouds that would follow Fernando for the rest of his life. They had a big tarp, and they just raised it over their heads to protect from the rain. Fernando struggled to fit underneath the tarp with Bruno, but the rain started to come down even harder. The sound was very high because... The the rain was pouring down and making a lot of noise in the tarps. Then suddenly, an even louder sound. Gunshots. Fernando heard the the gunshots and he heard the police uh, yelling, you are all bandits, you know, don't run, you are all bandits, you are all going to die. And then some people ran, some people stayed and... uh, Fernando's partner 
tried to run, you know, he stood up and tried to run and he was immediately shot and he fell over Fernando. So Fernando was beneath his partner. His partner was, you know, having his last seconds. He told us he saw, uh, he said goodbye to his partner with a sad look. Fernando played dead for hours so that the police couldn't catch him and kill him too. Still covered in his Bruno's blood, he managed to stumble towards some farmhouses nearby. And no one would shelter him. No one would help him. They would say, the police just came here. The police told us that if we shelter you, they're going to kill us too. So you can't stay here. But finally, 24 hours after the massacre, someone did help him. That person took him to a safe house in Rio, and that's where Ana met him. Bruno and nine others from Santa Lucia Farm were killed that day. My God, Yesenia, the scene you and Anna describe is just horrifying. Why you have people growing fruits and vegetables on abandoned land? Why would the police go after them so violently? Was there a pretense to any of this? Yeah, it's all a little complicated. A security guard for the Babinski family the legal landowners, had been killed a month earlier on the property. So the police say that they arrived at the farm that day, May 24th, 2017, to arrest those allegedly involved. But instead, they killed anyone who got in their way. Today, those same police officers walk freely as the case plays out in the courts. I feel like with any environmental justice story that is rooted in power imbalance and in violence, there is almost always some deeper history to unpack. And I'm curious if you can walk us through how this particular dynamic developed in Brazil, where landless workers and land defenders need to fear for their lives at every step of what they do. It's rooted in one of humanity's original sins, colonialism. The Portuguese arrived to Brazil in the 16th century And once there, they claimed the land, only giving access to those who were wealthy. They quickly monopolized trade of a valuable redwood that was typically used in dye. But then they didn't stop there. They chopped down even more trees to make way for massive sugar plantations, which was, as you might guess, powered mostly by indigenous and then African enslaved peoples. Then by the 17th century, the focus of their exploitation shifted. They started looking to diamonds and gold before expanding into rubber up until the 19th century. And all of this, all of this taking and hoarding and extracting, this was all before independence. Yeah. In 1822, Brazil finally became independent of Portugal, but that didn't mean that all the land was up for grabs again. In fact, the new government passed a law to prevent the poor from owning land by requiring that land be purchased, not merely occupied for ownership. And all this exclusion set in motion power dynamics that still have consequences today. Some might even argue that the exploitation of the land and its people back then is the reason for the ongoing ecological crises we see today. This feels like such a critical insight to pause and really underline that We don't get a crisis in the Amazon or a climate crisis writ large, for that matter, without a crisis of colonization first. 
Exactly. You know, this European obsession with power and greed and rule, that's what got us here. I mean, look at Manifest Destiny, right? That whole idea of expanding and taking, you know, the pillaging of the planet rather than in respecting it and maintaining a balance. All that logging and mining and polluting, that's what has pushed us to the brink. We wouldn't be facing mass extinction and climate calamity if Europeans had instead learned from the indigenous peoples and their ways of life rather than attempt to exterminate them. And for many decades, enslaved people were the commodity to be stolen from the land and traded. But even though slavery was abolished in Brazil in 1888, its legacy lived on. The wealthy, largely landowners, walked away with their pockets full. Sure, they didn't have people to abuse anymore, but they still had all their land. The main commodity became the land itself. So truly, land has never not been power in Brazil. Yeah, and throughout all this time, formerly enslaved people, indigenous people, and poor people, they were occupying lands where they could even if the lands weren't theirs on paper. And you know, what's really fascinating, Catherine, is that when Brazil finally did get a democratic constitution in 1988, exactly 100 years after abolition, that document tried to address this land inequality and formalize some of the informal land ownership. It required all land to have rational and adequate use. That's the official terminology. So basically, unproductive land or land that's not being farmed is supposed to be returned to the public so that someone else can put it to better use. So this is fascinating. Rational and adequate use. So I take it that in the case of the Santa Lucia farm, Fernando's farm, because the Babinskis were just holding that land, not producing on the land, that land was supposed to be returned under... Brazil's constitution. Exactly. This constitutional language is really the foundation for the landless workers movement and its efforts to occupy lands and claim them as their own. So far, some 370,000 families in Brazil have been resettled this way. And when Fernando and the settlers first arrived on the land, they said there was nothing except a few sickly cattle that had been clearly abandoned there. I'm no expert in the Brazilian constitution, but this seems like a pretty clear opening. So what did Fernando and the other settlers end up doing on the land? They tried to make it their own. You know, they built their homes and their farms, but they only grew enough crops for themselves and their families. They don't use the intensive agricultural methods that degrade the soil or tear down swaths of forest. They were using the land in a more sustainable, regenerative way that leaves surrounding forests largely intact. And they weren't using heavy pesticides and chemicals either. This definitely sounds far preferable to the things we hear about, like mass monoculture, soy, and cattle ranches that don't leave a shred of the forest behind them. And you're really touching on some of the tensions that are actually unfolding right now, Catherine. I wanted to dive deeper into the modern-day landless workers movement and their place in the environmental movement, so I called up Evie Oliveira. She's based in Brazil as a protection coordinator for the Americas with an organization called Frontline Defenders. It's an international human rights group focusing on protecting folks like Fernando. I've been doing this, like working with uh, activists at risk for almost 12 years. And uh, it's been part of, I don't know, a background where I've came from a family where we have uh, people that have been threatened before and lots of uh, our uh, family members. 
Evie and I went back and forth about how to characterize the modern day landless workers movement. They were not necessarily calling themselves environmental defenders, but they were definitely part of the defenders of the nature of the, the group of defenders. And would you describe all land defenders as earth warriors? That's, you know, I think a term that we hear across many indigenous communities in particular. Would you describe them as earth warriors? Hmm. That's a interesting question. We don't hear that much. I think the, the translations in here, but yes, earth warriors are land protectors. Yeah, heroes of the environment that are like different. Guardians. I feel like that's something I hear in Spanish as well sometimes. Guardians. Yes, guardians, definitely. So yeah, these landless workers aren't traditional environmentalists, but what's clear is that their relationship to the land, it's not about profit. It's about protection. And that's why they're so critical to the climate conversation in the Amazon. Right. If we are just thinking about big ag jaguars and forest fires, we are missing a fundamental part of this story. And what I think is so important about the reporting you've done, Yesenia, is that we're talking about lives that are in the balance, right? People who are farming in ways to feed their families, feed their communities, protect ecosystems, they're under threat in places like Brazil. They're among some of the most threatened people in the world, especially among indigenous communities. Last year, 2020, was the deadliest year on record for environmental defenders. At least 227 people were murdered across the world. And the sad part is that the true number is likely a lot higher. In Pará, where the Santa Lucia farm is, the situation is especially severe. Though it's home to only 4% of Brazil's population, more than 30% of the country's land defender deaths occurred there from 2015 to 2019. Wow, that's really a hotspot of the worst kind. And I know that on the climate front, the election of President Bolsonaro has made everything worse. And I have to assume that's been similar for landless workers. Yeah, this guy is seriously bad news. Since taking office in 2019, he's essentially declared war on the environment. There's good reason many have compared him to Trump. In his short two and a half years in office, he's defended and even promoted industrial activities in the Amazon. He even scaled back efforts to address illegal logging, mining, and ranching. He's known for his aggressive and inhumane treatment of indigenous peoples, but he doesn't stop there. Here's Evie again. We're talking about a president that called environmental NGOs a cancer that is hard to kill. So we are talking about an administration that has hate speech against those groups, and not only the hate speech, but also uh, taking away different spaces where the groups could claim their rights. There has been an increase in the levels of violence perceived and lived by, by defenders. And Bolsonaro's disgusting behavior doesn't end there. Because Fernando is gay, it's also worth mentioning Bolsonaro's violent attitude toward the queer community. In 2011, for example, he said something quite shocking. He would be unable to love a gay son. I would prefer that my son die in an accident, he said. The same year he took office, over 300 LGBTQ people died violently in Brazil. 90% were homicides. The rest were suicides. 
And just last year, the number of trans people murdered rose by more than 70%. There's a reason Brazil has come to be known as the world LGBT murder capital. Wow, I had no idea about those statistics. And I can only assume that this repressive and violent context has also enveloped landless workers. Yeah, Bolsonaro has made it pretty damn clear he's not a fan. But the landless workers are fighters. In fact, the 2017 massacre on the farm has actually fueled the movement in Brazil, not silenced it. But the more attention the case got, the more Fernando's life was endangered. Here's Ana again. I feel that Fernando was always at a fragile place, you know, since the massacre happened. Even the day after the massacre, when we met him, you know, it wasn't 100% safe. We were very worried about uh, his safety. Because Fernando was the primary witness to the 2017 massacre of 10 land defenders, he feared for his safety. And he actually entered a witness protection program for a time. But it didn't take long for the land to call him back. He decided to return to the land. You know, he didn't, he didn't cope with the whole witness protection setup. He wanted to fight for the land. Fernando found comfort and a relative sense of safety on the land. He invested in his home, upgrading from a little tent to a sturdy wooden house. He also built a grocery store and a bar with Wi-Fi for all the families. And... He was happy there. I know that he was. These four years that he spent there, he was, he was happy, you know. Fernando had a good life in the settlement. So it sounds like, at least for a time, the atmosphere on the farm had calmed down a bit, gone a bit back to some kind of normal. It had, but the case was intensifying in the courts. The families living and farming there had nearly won their case to keep the land when Bolsonaro entered office in 2019. Then he pretty much erased any chance they had to stay. First, he defunded the program for the government to buy the land. So then the Babinski family went back on the offense, demanding eviction. And the courts, of course, granted it. Because of the pandemic, there is a nationwide eviction ban that gives families more time. But the clock is ticking. And then police threats against Fernando intensified. And he asked Anna, who had been documenting his story, to hold back. They are telling me that they want to come here and talk to me. They, they have been sending messages about uh, how they want me to, to, to change my testimony. Fernando was the main witness to the, to the massacre. So he told us this and he said, still don't publish. And this was very different because Fernando was usually very open and very brave about having his story told. He said, don't publish, don't, don't do this, because I'm afraid that if you do, they're going to get angrier. And maybe they don't even have real plans of coming here. Maybe, I don't know, they're just trying to uh, intimidate me. So let's not do this. Let's not make them angrier. So Anna held the story. I didn't publish, and he was killed Anyway, on January 26th, Anna got the call. I was absolutely shocked. First, I got a message from someone in the settlement. They just wrote, Mataram Fernando. They killed Fernando. And I couldn't believe. I said, no, maybe this is wrong information. You know, it was so short and 
such big news in such short, short sentence. And I thought, no, it didn't happen. And then I just sat down on the floor. Uh, I was in my living room. I just sat down and said, I don't believe this. And he said, yeah, they shot him in the back of his head. Fernando was someone very smart. He knew how to protect himself. He was one of the smartest uh, rural workers I knew. He knew what to do. He knew what was going to happen. He knew how to protect himself. Oh, wow. I can only imagine how Anna felt getting that phone call. Do they have any idea who killed him? And is there any chance that that person or those people will be held accountable? Yeah, no one knows who killed him or who ordered the attack. But his friends and his family, the remaining families on the farm, advocates like Evie, they all suspect that the police must have been involved in some way. But it's unlikely anyone will be held responsible. It's rare that anyone ever is. That's why Anna is so compelled to tell the story, even though it's difficult to hear and even more difficult for her to speak about. She says it illustrates everything wrong with the socio-political situation in Brazil. You know, I think that we in the West like to romanticize the Amazon and think of it as devoid of human influence. Like, we know that's not actually the case with all the deforestation going on due to mining, ranching, and logging interests. But there are other people who tend to the land, too. And these farmers... People like Fernando, they're a much better alternative than the intensive industrial practices that are pushing the rainforests to become a source of carbon emissions rather than a carbon sink. They play a really similar role to the indigenous nations that also call the Amazon home. They farm and, you know, they may cut down some trees to do so, but they're doing it to survive, not to become rich. And every time we lose someone like Fernando, we make room for the alternative, those evil, greedy corporations, families like the Babinskis, they all become even more powerful and emboldened. And across the planet, these power dynamics exist. Where there are resources to extract, there's someone trying to protect them and someone else trying to exploit them. The planet can't take much more extraction, though. It needs some time to rest from everything we've done to it already. People like Fernando can offer that to the land. And we all benefit from the impacts these protections have on the broader climate systems. You know, Yesenia, I think you've made a really powerful case in reporting this story that this loss, anytime land defenders are killed, this is a loss for the entire climate community. And we hear so much, especially as we head into another round of international climate negotiations about nature-based solutions, nature-based solutions. And increasingly, we hear about indigenous land rights, right, as a strategy for protecting ecosystems, ensuring that they are stewarded. But what you're showing us here is that there are also non-indigenous rural communities that are playing a critical role in stewarding land. And we can't understand what a just and livable future looks like if we don't understand the role that folks like Fernando are playing. You know, we all have our role to play, right? It's not just those people on the front lines. It's not just rural farm workers or indigenous peoples. 
All of us have a role to play. And Evie told me that a lot can be achieved by applying international pressure. You know, the European Parliament held a meeting in April to discuss Fernando's death. His lawyer provided a virtual testimony, but the EU still hasn't taken action to penalize Brazil for its human rights abuses or to protect the Amazon and the rural farm workers who call it home. One of the best ways people like me and you or our listeners One of the best ways we can influence the situation from the outside is through global food supply chains. I know it sounds really boring, but as consumers, we have such power. You know, some of the same cattle that graze on conflict-ridden lands also wind up in local grocery stores. Evidence suggests that cows from the Santa Lucia farm, where Fernando was killed, made it into European markets. Consumers can demand grocery stores boycott Brazilian beef, or go even harder and ask their governments to ban beef imports from the country altogether, at least until officials clean up their supply chain and protect human rights. It really is a reminder of just how much harm way beyond emissions can be hidden in global supply chains. So I'm keeping everyone who is still alive and well and hoping to sustain their land tenure on Santa Lucia farm. In my thoughts, I I think we all are because their livelihoods depend on it and the planet needs them. You know, the families in the settlement have their own name for the land, Agampamento Jane Julia. She was their former leader who was killed during the massacre and also Fernando's best friend. They continue their struggle in her honor and in his. They don't want their deaths to have been for nothing. So every day they wake up, farm, and risk their lives. It's better than the alternative than giving up the land and going hungry again. It's the same decision that brought Fernando happiness before he was killed, as Ana explained to me. And for these families, a little more time on the land, together, is worth the risk. The fear of being killed and actually being killed inside the settlement in the end. Still, he had good four years there. And this is what people are choosing to do, you know? They're trading their lives for a few good years having food and having a good life in the land. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, and by Dr. Leah Stokes. Yesenia Funes, climate editor of Atmos, is our guest reporter. Yesenia, thank you. Thank you for having me. We are a production of Postscript Media, podcasts for a changing planet. Jamie Kaiser and Dalvin Abouaji produced the show. Stephen Lacey is our executive editor. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. Fact-checking by Emma Swanson. Thanks to our funders and supporters who make this show possible. Sunrise Project, Northlight Foundation, McKnight Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, and UC Santa Barbara. If you're digging the show, please hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating or leave a review. And come back soon as we tell more stories for the climate curious. Climate Curious.